I say this as a preacher now with about eight years of pastoring. You run into distractions as a preacher. I always do think it is a little bit interesting when I preach a sermon. Um, I can see you, you know. I can see you. I see the people on their phones busily pretending that they're on their Bible app uh, or whatever it is. I see you. Many distractions I will say I don't even see. Tabitha sometimes will uh, say to me, did you see Emma? Did you hear Emma? I say, no, honestly, I didn't. I was just locked in. Some disruptions I do see, and I do my best to soldier on. And if you've come to Straight Gate Church for any length of time, you know that there are some distractions that we deal with here. Uh, some of them of, uh, of our own making. I remember, oh, probably now about 30 years or so ago, I and my brother James were sitting in the second row right here. Apparently, we were being a little bit distracting to my father because in the middle of the sermon, he said, Peter and James, please get up and go to my study. It was a long walk down that aisle, folks. It was a long walk, and it was a long wait, and then it was over very quickly, and we were chastened. Put it that way, we, we received our medicine, our comeuppance, uh, and I hope that it did produce some better character in us. Well, disruptions happen when someone is teaching or preaching. Thank you, Ben. That is a good disruption right there. Make sure the preacher is hydrated. But there are some disruptions that even we at Straight Gate have never experienced before. Today's passage has to do with a disruption. Now to do that, you have to come into the story here of first century Palestine in a, in a city called Capernaum. Mark chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, and verses 1 through 12, Jesus as you know, we ended last week in Mark chapter 1. The man that Jesus healed, who was a leper, went and began publicly proclaiming what had happened, telling everyone what had happened, and Jesus' popularity just exploded. It actually hindered his ministry. He could no longer go into cities. He had to go out into desert places. Well, things must have calmed down after some period of weeks or months, because we read in Mark 2 and verse 1, again, he entered into Capernaum after some days. So you can just imagine the crowds just starting to shrink a little bit. So now Jesus can go back into this city on the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. And he enters into a house. And we hear, he, and we hear that it was noised or that it was spread, it was publicized that he was in the house. And straightway or immediately many were gathered together, so the crowd comes back, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. So again, the picture is, you've got this house in Capernaum. This might have been Peter's house. That's probably the best guess. Remember we were in Peter's house when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law who was sick of a fever? It's likely that Jesus was back in that house. And now the house is so full, not one person can get in. They were crowded around the door. They were standing shoulder to shoulder, absolutely packed in to this house. 
And then we see in verse 3, they come unto him bringing one sick of the palsy. Now the, the palsy is a paralysis. It's someone who is paralyzed. Paralyzed, perhaps most likely in their lower extremities, in their legs or in their feet. That meant they could not, this person could not walk. They were bedridden. So this paralyzed man, which was born or carried of four. So again, have this picture. You've got a man laying on a bed on a kind of stretcher. And you've got four friends that are carrying him. Carrying him because he can't walk. And when they could not come nigh, they couldn't come near unto him for the press, for the group of people. They couldn't get through the crowd into the house. They uncovered the roof where he was. Now, friends, we have never had a distraction of someone coming through the roof. That would be very dramatic here at Straight Gate Church with this elevated ceiling. But again, I just want you to picture, come into this story, right? It's just unbelievable human drama. You've got people crowded into the roof, under the roof, into the house, and suddenly thatch starts falling from the ceiling. Mud starts falling from the ceiling. You say, what do you mean? Well, what were houses constructed with in first century Palestine? They weren't shingled roofs like we have. They were thatched roofs. A thatched roof would have beams of wood, like almost like we would today, but it was a flat roof. So you can imagine a, a small room, a smallish room. People are literally jammed in like sardines. You have beams going across the roof, and then you have thatch. You would have mud, like hardened, caked mud. You would have thatch, like branches or sticks or other things. You would have straw that was there, and it all made into this flat but fairly sturdy, solid roof. And so these men say, we can't get through the door. We're going to go up the external staircase or ladder to the roof, and we're going to find where Jesus is in that room. That's the other thing. They didn't want to come down on the shoulders of some dude. They needed to figure out where Jesus was. So can't you just see them? Okay, where do you think he is? You think he's over here? Yeah, I just, I, I hear him. I think we're right over him now. And then they start digging. And people start looking up. What's going on? And then suddenly a bed starts getting lowered into the room from the ceiling. I mean, picture yourself here. This is incredible. And then this man gets dropped down right in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I want to pause there for just a minute. Because it's very easy when we deal with narratives in our Bible to lose the forest for the trees. When you get a fascinating story like this, I, how many sermons have you heard focused on the four men and their faith. How many, how you probably almost certainly have heard a sermon on the four men and their faith. That's a pretty cool part of the story. It's a pretty amazing part of the story. We'll talk about that too. Others might focus on the crowd and on the Pharisees. Can you imagine those guys trying to get in and just bumping into people and, and, and trying to pass? Nope, sorry, can't get through, we're here. That's not the main part of the story. Some people, you might be tempted to focus on the paralysis that Jesus said to the paralyzed man, 
you're healed, get up, take up your bed and go to your house. And he gets up immediately and goes. That's not even the main part of the story. The main part of the story, the forest, if you will, that sometimes we might lose for the trees, is exactly what Jesus says in this story to the Pharisees. He says in verse 10, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power or authority, is what that idea conveys, power or authority on earth to forgive sins. The main theme of this story is that Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins. That's the main part of the story. Everything else are good, interesting, helpful, productive details, but they're not the main thing. Now let's situate ourselves in Mark for just a minute. We've already seen that the main theme of Mark that we've been looking at is the king has come. There's a king, his name is Jesus. He's the Messiah, he's the savior. And we have seen over the last several weeks, Mark describing what this king is like. He's a sovereign king because he has authority over everything. He's a servant king because he runs on other people's timelines, not like an ordinary king. He serves others, that's what he came to do. And he's a sympathetic king because he goes to the people that no one else wants to touch, that everyone else wants to be rid of. And he goes to them and touches them and heals them. There's one more thing that we need to learn over this chapter divide from Mark chapter two is this, that Jesus is the sin-forgiving king. He is the sin-forgiving king. And that is the title of our message today. And I want to make sure that we come into the main theme of the story before we even are able then to glean application from these other parts of the story that make it so fascinating to us. First of all, I want us to see the authority of Christ pursued. His authority pursued. He has authority to forgive sins. Now let's start again at the beginning of this story because you have a popular teacher. You have Jesus in a house and everyone is jammed in to hear him and he is preaching. He's preaching the word to them. You have a, a paralyzed man. You have a man who has some kind of paralysis. We don't know what it was. We don't know whether he was paralyzed from, from if you will, head to toe. We don't know whether he was what we would call a quadriplegic or a paraplegic, he may have been just paralyzed in his legs, but whatever it was, he could not get to Jesus. He could not walk, he could not move in a way that would allow him to get to Jesus. And we also see some persevering friends. They come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four, people carrying him. Now again, I want you to imagine these four friends. We don't know anything about them. We don't know their names. We don't know where they came from. We don't know why they decided that this man needed for sure to see Jesus, but we have a pretty good idea. We have a pretty good idea because as they came in to this house, they desperately wanted to get in. Have you ever been somewhere in a crowd where you literally couldn't move? Surrounded maybe in a train station or a subway station, maybe at a, at, a, at a sporting event or a concert or some other thing where it was shoulder to shoulder and everyone was stuck. You heard that story recently of people at a very uh, pro uh, prominent um, African soccer game. Many people were trampled 
when they were trying to press into a crowd and many of them died. There's something that's deeply concerning about being stuck in a crowd and not being able to move. We don't really like it very much. And these men are trying to get in. Can't you just see them? Excuse me. Excuse me, we got a man here who needs to see Jesus and this crowd just packed in, not moving. No one can turn, if you will, even move their shoulders around and and no one apparently tried to make a way for him to come in. Now at that point, an ordinary person would have said, oh well, I didn't work. Maybe we can get him tomorrow. Maybe we can come back when the crowd leaves. That's what an ordinary person would have said, not these guys. Be honest, how many of you would have thought, let me go up and destroy this guy's roof? What do you think Peter thought? Peter's probably sitting there thinking, I hope you guys are gonna pay for this. I hope you guys are gonna come and actually refix the roof for me. I wouldn't have thought of that. But these guys did. They go up. And they start digging a hole in the roof and then they let him down right in front of Jesus. Now Jesus recognizes this. We see not just the authority pursued by these persevering friends, but we see the authority proclaimed. Notice verse five. When Jesus saw their faith, their faith, what motivated them? faith that was faith wasn't it now why did they have faith that Jesus would heal their friend this is really important because he'd been healing everyone this wasn't just some wish this wasn't just some minor hope that they said well let's cross our fingers maybe he'll be in a healing mood today these guys said He's been healing anyone who comes into contact. All we have to do is get him in front of Jesus and our friend will be healed. Friend, do you know that tells you something what faith is? If you turn on your televisions, it's not going to take long before you see some preacher somewhere telling you what faith is. And they're going to present it to you like wishful thinking, like positive thinking, like, 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 like hoping God is going to do something for you, like, like really gritting your teeth and really believing he's going to do something. No, no, that's not what biblical faith is. Biblical faith, as we see from this, pers- uh, from this passage and many others, has at least two components. The first thing is it's knowing the character of God. Knowing the character of God. Knowing what he is like and what he desires. These men knew. They had seen Jesus. They have heard of Jesus. They understood what his character was. And they knew what he was like. And that's why then what did they do? They relied on it. They trusted in it entirely. Faith involves those two characteristics. It involves knowing the character of God and involves trusting it, relying on it. When you came to be saved, you knew the character of God. You said, I am a sinner and I know you are a savior. I know that if I cry out to you, you will forgive me of my sins and be saved. And what did you do? You trusted in it. You relied on it. You stood on the promise and said, Jesus, I am coming to you 
and you promised you would save me. That is how someone comes to be saved. That's faith. It's not wishing. It's not just mere hoping. It's not just saying, I hope this is going to work. It is knowing the character of God truly for what it is, and it is trusting in it and relying on it. And that's what these men did, that he saw their faith. Now, I want us to notice something about Jesus just by way of passing. Jesus wasn't irritated for a moment. How many times have you been interrupted in your train of thought and been irritated? Dads and moms, have you ever been in a conversation and your kids came up for the 60th time tugging on your shirt and saying, Dad, Mom, can you help me? And sometimes, I bet, like I have done, you just got a little frustrated and said, wait! Jesus didn't get, dis- did- didn't get irritated or frustrated. He saw what was most important about these men, their faith, and he was happy to be distracted. He was happy to put aside even his important teaching because he knew there was something that needed to happen and he saw their faith. Not only do we see what Jesus saw, but notice what he said. Verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, to the paralyzed one, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Really the idea is your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He was telling him something that had happened. I want you to pause for a moment to understand this word forgiven. We say to people, I forgive you, but we don't honestly, I think, really understand what it means. To say I forgive you is not just to say, oh, oh, don't feel bad about it. That's not it. To say I forgive you, you need to understand this word here in the Greek. This word literally means to send away, to dismiss. Do you know what it means to forgive? To dismiss the wrongdoing that someone else has done to you, to dismiss it and to send it away. Here's what Jesus said to this man. Your sins are dismissed. Now, I'm a lawyer, and sometimes my clients get sued, and my clients want to come to me and say, Peter, how can we get this lawsuit dismissed? Do you know what a dismissal is? When the judge says, your claim's done, you don't have a claim, the lawsuit is over, and this side wins. I want you to think about that. God has a lawful claim against everyone who sins because he is a holy God who made us and he has expectations for us as his creatures, as his creation. And he says, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And every single one of us violate his standards, violate his laws, violate his obligations. That is sin. And God has a legal claim, a claim against his holiness for everyone who has sinned. And Jesus says that claim is dismissed. That claim is sent away. That's what happens when you are forgiven. By the way, we'll look at this more tonight. But that is an essential thing. If you want to have good relationships with people, you need to know how to dismiss their wrongdoing against you. You need to know how to send away their wrongdoing and embrace them like Jesus embraces us. You can't have a good marriage unless you know how to dismiss 
the wrongdoing that your spouse does, their selfish actions, their behavior that is wrong. We all need to grow to be like Jesus in the way we dismiss the claims that we might have against others. But Jesus says your sins are dismissed. They're sent away. They're forgiven. Now let's stop for a moment here because some people focus only on the faith of the friends and don't focus on the faith of the man. They act like this is only vicarious faith. And there is an act of vicarious faith on behalf of the man. But friends, people's sins don't get forgiven without their own faith. Your mama's faith can't save you and get your sins forgiven. Your relative's faith can't get your sins forgiven. Your faith is required. And that's why we know that this man came with his own faith. You say, what faith did he have not just to be healed, but to have his sins forgiven? Right? There's a difference. Do you think those friends were a little bit discouraged when Jesus said your sins are forgiven? Don't you think they might have said, wait wait a second, we came for healing. Why would this man have faith not only to be healed, but to be forgiven? Well, you need to understand, again, something about first century Jewish culture. Do you know what people, the rabbis taught and believed in first century Judaism? If you were sick or you were paralyzed, it was your fault. It was your fault. Do you remember in John chapter 9, even Jesus' disciples took in this teaching. They saw a man that was blind from his birth. And they said, who sinned, Jesus? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Why? Because that was the teaching. If a man was was suffering, if a man was debilitated, if a man had this kind of issue, certainly sin caused it. And you can imagine the burdens that this put on people. Our friend Johnny has testified to the burdens that people have placed on him in his own challenges, his own physical challenges. This is a terrible thing for us to do. And Jesus corrected it in John 9. He said, neither this man sinned nor his parents. We shouldn't embrace that model. Oh, something bad happened to that guy? Well, God got him. It was his sin. No, that's wrong. It's unbiblical. But this man, growing up in that culture, he probably believed it was connected to his sin. There is a sense here in which he's being let down with Jesus, not only knowing of his paralysis of his body, but he knows the paralysis of his soul. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he was in need of the king's forgiveness. And that's why Jesus could look at him and say, son, your sins are forgiven. You came in faith. Your sins are forgiven. In fact, There's something here that Matthew records. This story is in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. And when you compare the different versions of the story, you can get different uh, uh, little details that are helpful. Matthew records this. When Jesus forgave his sins, announced the forgiveness of his sins, he said this. He said, son, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Do you know what he was saying? Be Take courage. Your sins are forgiven. Cheer up. Your sins are forgiven. In other words, what did Jesus see when that man was let in? He was a little nervous. He was repentant. He was perhaps even downcast by his circumstances, which caused Jesus in love to look at him and said, take courage. Your sins are dismissed. They're sent away. And I just want to say this this morning. 
There are some people that might be here this morning and you're feeling discouraged because you feel paralyzed spiritually. You feel like you're utterly helpless. You're hopeless spiritually. You, you keep on falling into sin or maybe you've recognized that your life has not found God's favor. You yourself are, are, are set apart from God. Recognize what Jesus says to the people who come to him. The, the, if, if people come to the king and embrace him for who he is in faith, he, he says, take courage, take heart, take comfort. Your sins are forgiven. You can be made right with God today. But notice as Jesus proclaims his authority, notice finally his authority proved. Because there was a crowd in that house And notice how they responded. Look in verse six, immediately after Jesus announces that this man's sins are forgiven, they're dismissed. There were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Who are the scribes? The scribes were a sect of the Pharisees, could also be of the Sadducees, but we know from other passages that the Pharisees were here. They were very influential religious leaders. And these scribes have packed into this room because they're curious like everyone else is. They want to see this man who is healing people and who is teaching people. And so they're packed in and they see Jesus say, son, your sins are dismissed. And immediately what do these religious leaders do? They start grumbling inside. Now it had to have been that some things were happening outside too. When you preach, sometimes you see people, you say something and they go like this. Huh? Can't you just imagine those guys? They probably didn't hide it very well. But listen to what they were saying. They were reasoning in their hearts, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? He's blaspheming, why? Who can forgive sins but God only? Now I want you to see that these men were entirely theologically orthodox on this point, this is what I mean. Who can forgive sins but God? No one. I can't forgive sins. You can't forgive sins. One person can forgive sins, and that's the judge. God can forgive sins. So they were right. Here's the problem. They just didn't realize how right they were. Have you ever had someone say something to you, and you want to say to them, Well, yeah, of course, duh. And here these people said, who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus, can't you see Jesus wanting to look at them and say, yeah, yeah, who can? There's a similar story. Do you remember when that rich young ruler came to Jesus and say, good master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why are you calling me good? There's no one good but God. Was Jesus saying, no, I'm not God. Don't call me good. Jesus was saying to him, are you listening to what you're saying? Do you realize who you just called me? You're calling me God. And he wasn't saying that to discourage him. He was saying that to make him think, yeah, whoa, maybe he is. This is exactly the element of this story. Who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus is saying, I can. Why? Because I am God. 
I am the representative and authority of God as the son of God here on this earth. But they couldn't make that connection. They were too stuck in their pride. They were too stuck in their tradition. They were too stuck in their own misinterpretation of the law they studied. And so what does Jesus say? Look at verse number eight. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he knew exactly what was going through their minds, exactly what they were thinking. He said unto them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Now, do you think that put them back a little bit? Huh? Jesus says, this is what you're thinking right now, isn't it? And they say, yeah. That should have, that should have clued them off. But he says in verse 9, whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, the paralyzed one, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk. Now let's break this down because this might be a little bit confusing. Jesus says, which is easier to say, take up your bed and walk, or to say your sins are forgiven? Which is easier? Now I've heard some people explain this to say, well, both are really difficult but both are equally easy for Jesus. Well, that's, that's true. It's equally difficult, I suppose, to forgive someone's sins and to heal them, but it's equally easy for Jesus to forgive sins and to heal someone. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Because notice, he doesn't ask them, is it easier to forgive someone's sins or to heal their paralysis? He doesn't say that. He says, whether is it easier to to say. Let me give you an example. I want you to imagine that I were promoting myself as some kind of miracle worker. Would it be easier for me to say, right now I am causing it to snow in the far off reaches of Antarctica where there are no weather stations and no one there to confirm that it's snowing? If I were to say, out in that region, it's snowing right now at my word. That'd be pretty easy for me to say. Why? Because things that cannot be validated by anyone, things that are invisible to us that cannot be proven, that's easy to say. Do you know what's hard to say? Go outside, it's snowing right now because I said. And then all of you get out and go outside and you validate that I was lying and that I didn't have that power. It's a lot easier to, valid, to, to say what cannot be validated, what cannot be proved, than it is to say something that can be validated and that can be proved. Do you get it? You get the idea? I think that's what Jesus is really saying. He's saying, of course, it's easy to say. And then look at verse 10. But that she may know, that's what Jesus is getting at. I want you to know. But that she may know that the Son of Man has power, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed and went forth before them all insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw it on this fashion. You better believe we never did. Jesus says, get up and take up your bed and go home. And immediately that man's paralyzed legs received strength and he got up and he walked out in front of them, probably pushing through that crowd until he got home. That's the power of Jesus 
And friends, I want to say this. Just as easy as it was for Jesus to say to this man, get up, and his body immediately responded in perfect health, it is that easy for Jesus to say to you, your sins are forgiven because he has power. Because he has authority from God to dismiss God's righteous claim against you when you come to him in faith. That's the story. That's the big theme here. Jesus has authority not just over doctrine, not just over demons, not just over diseases, but he has authority as the righteous judge, as the righteous authority of God to forgive your sins, to announce that they have been dismissed forever. Now, friends, now that we have this theme, we can draw some applications from it that I hope will be helpful for us today. There are three characters in this story that I want to think about by way of application for us. The first is the story of this man. Like I said, there may be some here today who are feeling paralyzed. Some people come to church because their life hasn't been going very well. Some people come to church because they feel they need a little pick-me-up. But friend, there is no kind of paralysis. There is no kind of need in your life that is greater than your sin. There is no greater authority that Jesus needs to exercise on your behalf than to say your sins are forgiven. And he's willing to do that if you will come to him in faith. I just plead with you this morning, wherever you are, whether you're sitting here or whether you're watching on live stream or whether you're watching years from now on some website or podcast, the most important thing that you can do if you've never come to Jesus Christ in faith is to fall down before him on your face and say, I need my sins forgiven. I am not right with God. I know that if I were to die today, I would have no certainty of going to heaven because I am not right with God. Friends, Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins, to dismiss them eternally when you come to him by faith. There's another character in this story that is very instructive and that are these four friends. Do you know, friends, there are some people that need to have their sins forgiven by Jesus and they need friends to carry them? Do you know there are some friends that in a sense will never come to Jesus on their own unless they have one or two or three or four friends or family members picking up a corner of that paralyzed sinner's stretcher and bringing it and putting it right in front of Jesus? Is that you? Are you willing to be one of those friends that by faith says to someone who is paralyzed in their own sin, come on, we gotta go see Jesus? You say, what does that look like? Well, think about what these men had to face. They had to face a crowd that wasn't letting them through, that they could have just given up. And some of us are dealing with our own circumstances and difficulties. I've tried with this person. I've tried. I haven't been able to get through to them. I haven't been able to get them to Jesus. Jesus says, keep on. Keep on trying. Keep on carrying. Keep on persevering. Keep on praying. Keep on speaking. Lift up that stretcher, bring it in front of Jesus. What else did they have to go through? 
they had to go through the kind of social stigma of that crowd in that room looking at them literally breaking a roof open. Can you imagine the glares they got? Can you imagine the social stigma that was attached? Who do these guys think they are? Who do these guys think they are breaking through the roof? How embarrassing, how humiliating. And friends, for some of us that need to take our loved ones to Jesus, yeah, it's gonna be embarrassing at times. There's gonna be people that are gonna be sneering at you. They're gonna be looking at you funny. Your colleagues at work may think, well, there's a fanatic. No, you're not a fanatic. You just know what people's greatest need is. And it's not for a happy marriage or a happy family. It's not for a a, a fat bank account. It's not for a great job. That's not someone's greatest need. It's not even for good health. The greatest need of any human being is for their sins to be dismissed. And therefore, those who understand that, who look at every person around them and say, that person's sins need to be dismissed, are those who will go even to paralyze sinners and seek to lift up a corner maybe with others, and find a way to Jesus. I was in an airplane last night, and I was thinking about this, and just that thought came into mind, I'm surrounded by people on on this airplane. The greatest need of everyone on here is that their sins be forgiven. And you know, if we just went through life with that awareness that the person who's serving you at the restaurant, her greatest need is to have her sins forgiven. Your neighbor next door, Oh, you get along, you have each other over for dinner. What's their greatest need? That their sins are forgiven. Friends, all around us, all around us are those who may never come to Jesus unless they have some friends who love them enough and trust Jesus enough to pick up their bed and fight through difficulty and fight through social stigma and bring them to Jesus. Friends, do you know this says something about our prayer too? Our prayer meetings can be times where we as a church come together and start pleading with God that we, that we would bring people to Jesus, lifting up their beds before his throne and saying, God, this one needs their sins forgiven. We're pleading with you to do that. We're pleading with you on this person's behalf. It's a wonderful thing to come to prayer meeting and pray for people to get better and for people, Christian friends, to get jobs back. But let's not forget the greatest need that people's sins are forgiven. But there's one other character in this story, and it's the exact opposite of the friends. It's the crowd. Does it ever strike you as interesting that there was a man who was obviously paralyzed and everyone knew that Jesus was a healer and no one tried to get out of the way? Can you imagine them trying to get through the crowd and someone looking at them and saying, no, can't you see I'm here? Why didn't anyone say, hey, I'll step outside as long as someone can get to Jesus who needs it? And you know, friends, I just want to make this simple observation. We as Christians can hinder people from coming to Jesus, not help them. And what hinders people from coming to Jesus is our selfishness, is our self-centeredness. You know, friends, when I treat the waitress selfishly at that restaurant, that might hinder her from coming to Jesus. You know, when I treat someone wrong at work or in my neighborhood at home, I act in my own selfishness. I act in my anger or my irritation or frustration. I'm standing in the door and blocking the way from someone perhaps who needs to come and experience the forgiveness, their greatest need fulfilled. This is why it is so important that you and I as Christians be the one whose example is always, come on in. 
Come on in and see. Jesus said, we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. He said, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Why? Because the light is going to shine. And this is then what he said. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. By the way we live, we are opening the door, we are clearing a path so that paralyzed sinners can see the way to Jesus to be healed, most importantly, of their sins. Friends, what a king we serve. What an incredible savior who has all the authority, not just to heal a paralyzed man like that, but with the authority of God, say to sinners, your sins are dismissed. That should make all of us, number one, grateful if our sins have been forgiven, but it should make all of us hungry to go home this afternoon and start praying, God, which paralyzed sinner would you have me pick up by the corner of a bed and bring them perseveringly in faith to be in front of the one who has the authority to forgive sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this story. We can so easily get lost in the details, but the main theme is that your son has authority, that you have delegated, as Jesus said, all judgment to the son, that one day every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Oh, I pray, Father, that we would bow before his authority this morning. I pray that if there's even one here or within the sound of my voice whose sins have never been forgiven, they've never been dismissed, oh, I pray, Father, that they would fall before the king, that they would embrace him by faith, that they would humble themselves in repentance and belief and experience the eternal forgiveness that he offers. Your sins are forgiven. And I pray, Father, for new and fresh vision for those of us whose sins have been forgiven, that we would show the faith of these men to perseveringly and humbly bring others into the presence of Jesus. Let not our selfishness stop us. Let not our pride push people away. Let us not be like that crowd Stir our hearts and encourage us to be your agents, in a sense, your feet, your hands of healing. Let's pause for a moment. Allow the Spirit of God to speak to us.